I've asked Suzanne Campbell to pray for us. She's sitting right here. And um, when you're ready, Suzanne. Is this on yet? It's on. Our dearest Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great gift that we are basking in this past week. And to think on it is beyond our understanding. We can't begin to thank you. Be with us this day as we begin to learn more about it, about your gift and your presence with us and what that means for us through John David's gift of teaching and our gift of response to you. Be with us, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, thank you. Okay, I'm going to put this mic here, and it has been requested that when you have a question, I know some of you don't like to speak into mics and you feel awkward, but it's for recording purposes so that when somebody listens to the tape later on, if they do, that they can understand the context. So don't be shy about this. Cindy, I'm going to give this to you. And there's a little bit of uh, feedback, which as a former rock star I like, but I don't think the rest of them are going to like it. Okay, there you go. Is that good? My voice is still okay? Okay, great. All right, uh, super happy to be here and to see every one of you. And uh, I can tell you, I think that I probably benefited the most from getting ready for this class of any that I can think of in a long time. So I'm already excited just from all the things that I've learned and things that have come into my mind over the last uh, three months I've actually been thinking about this course and so now here today we are and we're going to study together now Pastor David asked me uh, when we got together a long time ago to talk about this course that he because of the seasonal significance he wanted this course to be tied to the resurrection which we just celebrated last week so believe it or not you might not uh, be able to make the one to one correlation when you first look down this Uh, list of topics of how does this all relate to the resurrection, but I assure you that every one of these um, snippets that we're going to do together through this course has some significant correlation to the resurrection of Christ, but specifically how the resurrection ought to impact our lives or what purported impact that the apostles say that it should have. So that's sort of like the big idea the resurrection, uh, a journey into its meaning for each one of us. This is what this course is about. And we're going to look at it three different ways, the resurrection. Um, And I'll lay these out for you so you can kind of understand. We're going to look at it through the eyes of myth. And so the first two weeks, tonight or today and next week, we're going to look at some of the classic mythic ways of looking at reality that predated uh, the era of Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, Specifically today, we're going to look at Jesus' interaction with a group of Greeks. They're specifically mentioned as Greeks that came up to the Passover feast the week before Jesus died. And if you want to turn there now to just get ready, it's in the Gospel of John chapter 12. That's going to be our core text for today, this interaction that Jesus had with the Greeks. The thing is, unless you really understand, I think, the, the mythic background that these Greeks would have been carrying in their minds when they put their request in to Jesus' 
uh, disciples or his homies or however you want to look at them, uh, they had uh, an agenda and they had a mythic worldview that they brought to that discussion. And then Jesus' response back to them presupposes that this Greek myth that they are viewing life through has got some sort of substantive reality attached to it. And so he, what he does is, this is called contextualization. He speaks to their context, their mythic context, and puts himself into their worldview in terms that they can understand. So that's what you're going to see today. Uh, and next week, too, when we study the Eleusian Mysteries. Now, how many of you are familiar with the Eleusian Mysteries and have... Um, a- anybody? Has anybody ever even heard of it? <laughs> Brilliant. What else? You went to Malone? <laughs> Poor soul. <laughs> I went to Malone College, but I don't remember what they actually were. Okay, so you just remember, and probably in John Oliver's course, uh, he waxed on about it, and you remember it as a construct, but you don't remember what the details were. Okay, anybody else? Eleusian Mysteries. I only know it because I got online and looked oh, up. Oh, you did? Class. Oh, super. <laughs> okay, well, that's what I want you to do for next week. I mean, seriously, you, you need to, to spend 30 minutes to an hour on the Internet. Just Google Eleusian Mysteries. The, the, the actual spelling is typed out for you in the um, syllabus. What happened to my syllabus? I haven't... Let me have another one. Uh, it's typed out there for you. So next week, I want you to, to read about the Eleusian mystery. So the first two weeks, we're going to look at the resurrection as the fulfillment of ancient myths. And this might be shocking to some of you to come to the realization that God was not just working with Jews from the beginning of the human race, but was actually working through the Gentiles and actually um, using the mythic ways that they came to look at the world. Uh, In some mysterious way, God was part of that. And it doesn't mean that they got everything right, but they got some significant insights into life and meaning, even without the Bible, being guided by their own minds and their interactions with God. So we're going to look at those two things. Then we're going to look at the resurrection. Um, in terms of paradox, but, and that's a literary way of looking at things. And you'll see from the uh, syllabus, April 29th and May 6th and May 13th, are about these paradoxes that Paul lays into the New Testament. The principal texts that you're going to be studying are Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. When Paul makes this great assertion that Jesus is the second man or the second Adam, has anybody, do you, does anyone remember this kind of language when he calls Jesus the second man or the man from heaven or the... He actually calls him the second Adam. And the thesis is, is that Jesus, by his resurrection, has started a new form of the human race. You don't cease being human. 
but there's actually been a new thing done that allows the human experience to be quite different than it would be outside of being in Christ. And he does it in this paradoxical way of comparing the effects of Adam with Jesus. And what I've done is create this sort of like a poem, which you're going to read. You'll get it eventually. It's called Paradox. And actually, then I went and compared. uh, The women seem largely missing in this schema. You're just comparing Jesus and and, uh, Adam. Who else could we compare? Uh, Who? Even Mary. Yes. So, and actually there are allusions and hints in the New Testament that Mary is sort of like the new Eve and a new race is being born and she's the, uh, the mother of it in the same way that Eve was the mother of the biological human race. So we're going to look at the resurrection from those two ideas. John, you must come and sit. You must sit here though so that and then the third one, which is going to be a stretch for some of you, um, the last class is going to have to do with the planet Venus. And uh, <laughs> I've already heard from many members of my board, and they were like, so what version of LSD did you write the syllabus under? <laughs> they didn't quite say that, but the implication was clear. What? Now, uh, who knows anything about Venus in the Bible? Ah, who, the bright morning star. That's the ancient way of referring to Venus. They didn't realize that it's actually a planet because it looks like a star. Okay, brilliant. What about the bright morning star? Jesus calls himself, I am the bright morning star. So Jesus set this up and said, when you look at Venus, I want you to look at Venus and learn something about me because there is an analogical connection between the planet Venus and me. Now, why, why am I emphasizing it this year? Uh, does anyone know what 2012 is? Yes, there was a configuration of uh, Jupiter and Venus, which was quite spectacular. Uh, this year, 2012, is the year of Venus, and you can get a farm, good old farmer's almanac. I think I cited it for you in there, but I'll give you the citation. You can read. It, this year, two, 2012, Venus will be brighter than any time in our entire lifetimes. It will not be until 2117 that Venus will again be this bright. And it's going to ascend into its apex, which will be June 5th. So it's going to get brighter and brighter and brighter as the year goes on. And many other spectacular things are going to happen this year with configurations between Venus and other stars. So this is the year for Venus gazers. And uh, I want to show you how Jesus uh, uses um, a mythic way of looking at things to tie in and reveal something about himself and particularly the resurrection. Uh, the core every week that we want to make sure that we walk away from is this notion that's in Romans 5.20. I'd like you to look there with me this morning. 
And let's unpack this verse just as our starting point. And this is Paul's assertion that by virtue of the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, a state of reality has been brought into this world that was way different than existed before Christ did what he did. And uh, I'd like to have a couple readers. Um, who's got one of the um, really uh, modern versions? You have to turn it on. How's that? No? That's it. Okay. Who's got a modern version that we'll read for us? Romans 5.20. Okay. Who's got a decrepit ancient version that they will read? <laughs> I have the NIV. NIV. Let's start there. The law... The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, who's got a different way of phrasing that last part? Grace abounded. abounded. You've got to be reading out of uh, basically a King James or something like that, right? <laughs> NRSV, Okay. Anybody have a King James? Yes. What's it say? Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Keep going. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Grace did much more abound. So just looking at that text itself, what is Paul asserting here? As a result of um, Jesus fulfilling the law, because the law fulfilled its role, it showed us that we were in need of a Savior. It revealed to us our need for grace. But then now that Christ has come, what does he say the state of being is that you and I can experience? What's he, uh, what's he comparing when he makes, this is a comparative statement. He says, and literally in Greek, he uses the prefix hyper. It's hyper grace. Beyond blessed grace. It's, it's beyond any conceptions that we would have of grace. What's he comparing this beyond blessed grace, hyper grace too. Yes. Now think about this just for 30 seconds. If this is true, what is he really asserting? That grace is more powerful than sin. How much more powerful? Super, beyond. It can't even be legitimately compared. It's hyper grace. Now just tell me think in your heart for a second. Is that the way we look at life? That it's a blessing to be here alive now in the era of Christ because hyper grace is now available and it's not even worth being compared with the sin that preceded it. Go for it. Uh, but, he, but he refutes that. That is one um, trail when people have first encountered this notion. That is a trail that some have taken. Well, if that's the case, then let's sin all the more because the more we sin, the more God's grace will be poured down on us. But he, Paul deals with that. He says, may it never be. God forbid that you would take that path. That's not a legitimate inference of what I am asserting to you. So we can lay that one to bed. That's, that's not 
True, John. John, you need the mic. Um, I'm so sorry. Let me give a more extreme example, if I may. There was a man who had a treasure who was stealing from him. And he knew that, presumably, he knew the guy was stealing. And he didn't fire him. Not only did he not fire him, but the guy later betrayed him and felt so guilty that the guy killed himself. And the employer who did not kill him, fire him, was a man named Jesus. And the, the guy was Judas Iscariot. Okay, so there's an example of what you think to be hyper grace. Yes? Anybody else? Hyper grace, yes. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe the emphasis here is just um, trying to get people to realize you don't have to keep sacrificing bigger animals or more animals or more times or whatever. And you know, maybe this scripture is really just trying to emphasize it's not about what you do. Um, you fix. certainly have a lot of warrant for your conclusion there because the previous chapters, specifically Romans 3, he lays out the notion that Christ's death on the cross is the ultimate and complete sacrifice, and it does not need to be repeated. And so that is the dawning. It's his death and resurrection is the dawning of the state of beyond blessed grace. However, it's not to be taken in Paul's thought that it ends there. It's supposed to be a permeating reality that touches every dimension of our lives. The state of beyond blessed grace. We're supposed to live in it and experience it on an ongoing basis, not as just a past event. Because you could stop there. You could say, okay, great, now we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore, and I'm right with God. Boom. But theoretically, a person that did that, they could continue living life in the old way, as if we were still under law and we're, you know, we're still besieged and <clears throat> overwhelmed with all of our sins. And he's suggesting that the experience of grace when you first believe in Jesus is just the dawning. And it's supposed to be like, well, I guess you could use the old yeast metaphor. It's a drop of yeast into your consciousness that is now then supposed to permeate every dimension of your thinking. You're in the state of beyond blessed grace. Suzanne. I think also it's so easy when you see increase in sin around you to become very fearful and then to participate in anxious behaviors instead of trust. And that is so brilliant uh, in terms of what we're going to be doing today because we live in a world in which what you see is certainly not beyond blessed grace. Agreed? You see episodes of it. But the, the general tone of the world that we live in is sin, its consequences, and then what many people think is this increase of sin, this 
degeneration of our society. So that's what we're constantly being accosted with. We live in a world of sin, and that's because that's what we see. And Paul is now saying that there's another reality, there's another way of living that is not dependent upon your eyes or your sense experience or even the experiences that you have in life. It's a supernatural experience of God's grace that enables you to look at this world and the sin that we see through the eyes of God and beyond blessed grace. And you would actually see reality that way. And you can't do that in your natural power. So that, eventually today you'll understand why I've got this uh, projector going on and the, the light and the shadows. I'm going to show you something from uh, the, the ancient Greeks that will maybe help us understand this idea of stepping into a world that you can't see and experiencing its reality. Uh, and that's a total uh, new move for most human beings because we've learned from the childhood what? That we trust our five senses and that's how we acquire information and we trust our minds and that's how we arrive at conclusions and that's how we build our worldview. It's predicated and built on what we see and what we touch and what we taste and what we smell and what we hear. And he's now suggesting to us that there is another reality that you and I can experience that is beyond the world of senses. It's the realm of beyond blessed grace. And that when you step into it and you actually allow this yeast-like phenomenon to go on and permeate your consciousness, that that grace, that beyond blessed grace, becomes real in your mind and in your spiritual experience and can become so real and so pervasive and so powerful that you arrive at the state that Paul is talking about, that you no longer find it to be worthy to compare the grace that we can experience with the sin that preceded it because it's so much more overwhelmingly beautiful, so much more powerful beyond blessed grace that it makes the sin that we look at all the time appear insignificant. What do you think about that? What do you think? Something, something sparked through your head. Um, just it, it's just easier. It's difficult. I mean, I want that in the worst way, but it's just so hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very hard to, especially if you're a controlling. Well, for myself, I'm a controlling person, and so, but you know, so <laughs> it's just hard to release it. It's hard to release that and let Jesus come in and take over, because I really think in my head that I know, mm -hmm. and it's just really hard. Let's, let's amend your statement. I agree with everything you say. And instead of just saying it's really hard, let's say it for what the New Testament really says. And that is, it's impossible. <laughs> it is impossible for a human using the five senses to understand and experience Christianity, the way of Jesus, the way that it's intended to be experienced. So you might as well try to watch TV by listening to the radio. That's, that's impossible. That's what 
we need to understand this idea. Okay, Sue and then John. It doesn't mean that we ignore what is going on in the world. No. We don't live in another dimension no, it's away from. Your mind now, Paul is suggesting, that, and this is all bound up in what Christ did. His death and his resurrection is not just a historical event that took place in the past. It did. But that's, that's not the only way you should learn to look at it. It's an ongoing experience. It's an ongoing experience that you and I should have. And it's, you know, like you guys, most of you go to this church and you go to a church that has agreed that as we go through the church calendar that we're going to specify certain times in which we will remember certain of the big events that represent the Christ event, like Easter, like Christmas, and Pentecost. Um, and then we have in the church calendar, you're either preparing for one of these big events, which is what? Advent or Lent, or after the event has been duly remembered and noted and exp you know gone through, then we go into the post period, which what period are we in right now? John David. <laughs> Easter tide. Okay, and so then now we're in a period of we're supposed to be kind of reflecting back on that central event. Okay, that's fine, and, and, and that is all designed to help us realize that um, these big events are supposed to have an ongoing impact in our lives. They're not just historical events. They're supposed to be ongoing experiences that we have. So having said that, this is what Paul is doing. And you can use the calendar method if you want. There's nothing wrong with it. But you can also get so preoccupied with the events on the calendar that what happens? It, it gets compartmentalized. And it gets localized in a particular time and place. Okay, now is the time we celebrate Christmas. Now is the time we celebrate Easter. But in actuality, what the apostles want us to do is evolve in our consciousness so that the entire Christ event, his death, his, res his resurrection, his ascension, they are all so real in our consciousness that those become the ways in which we look at the world as if these things are really true. And then you enter in and you live in the age of grace, despite what the world... In fact, it's not that you would deny that the world is the way it is, because the point of Christ's death and resurrection is to deal with the world as it is. But having dealt with it, he now gives us the gift of living a way of life that is built upon what he did. And you and I can enter into that. Is it making sense what I'm describing? You sort of nod your head, so I want you to feel free to, to say anything you want. Yes? It's a way of looking at the Mm-hmm.
modern times, be all that you can be in the service of God. Yes, that's so correct. Until you can grasp that you are free from that, you are dragged down by that, and you can't lift yourself up to be all that you can be. Okay, so what he's talking about is exactly that. He's claiming that you can enter into that state of grace and live that way. It's a gift. You can let it happen. And there's, and there's a purpose. And there's a purpose to it. And, and the purpose is to, as Jesus is, he's the first one. He introduced this new age, this dawning of a new understanding, a new way of looking at life and experiencing life. And you and I are riding on what he's achieved and, and in the present time we're supposed to be exemplars examples of beyond blessed grace yes John, a year and a half ago you came and did study on Advent which changed my life and I think I've told you this personally before but what I learned and it was almost like okay I learned this I don't need to come back at all because <laughs> this was it the mark of a good teacher he drives people out of the church <laughs> and what it was is my, and I shared with the class then I'm always a how person, you know, okay, so, okay, God, but how? How, do, how am I ever going to do this? And you said, Terry, when the angel came to Mary and she said, how will this happen? His response was, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the how answer in our life is always the Holy Spirit. We cannot do it, and the only way that we can live in this beyond blessed grace is through the Holy Spirit, knowing who will do this in our lives. Okay, so that's, that is a b awesome encapsulation of New Testament theology. It's not a formula. Right. It's an interaction with a person, actually three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it is that experience with God as a person that allows you to step into this realm you may wind up doing certain things that look like a formula but they're not they're the byproduct of the encounter with God okay that sort of gives you the uh, tone and tenor of the course we're going to jump immediately right now today to this somewhat intriguing text I think and I want to see if we can work our way through it. It's John 12 20 through 36 and I want you to use your imagination this morning you absolutely need a Bible because you won't be able to follow it. John 12 20 through 36 I want you to envision this as a play it is actually set up sort of like a play there's a cast of characters. There's a dialogue that's going on. There's uh, something that out of this whole mix of discussion and uh, commentary and interview and all of that stuff, uh, just like a play would, there's a, there's a big idea that we're supposed to get. But the most intriguing thing starts in the first sentence. Verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. This is the Passover feast. This is six days before Jesus dies. So it's the last week of Jesus' life. Now what strikes anybody as somewhat interesting or odd maybe even about that first sentence? 
you know, what, are, what are Greeks doing here? This is a Jewish festival. And they're not going to be able to even participate fully in this event because they're not Jewish. So they can mill around on the outside of the temple, the gates of the courts of the Gentiles. They can hang out there. But they're not going to be able to go inside and actually uh, mingle with the Jewish people. There's a barrier that prevents them from doing it. So what are they doing here is number, question number one. Anybody want to throw out a, a possibility? Uh, they could be. But it's curious if they, if they were, why he doesn't uh, call them as usually called in the New Testament, God-fearers, or people that were hanging around the outer fringes of Judaism uh, because they liked monotheism and they were attracted to it, but they weren't willing at that point to sign up for the full program, which... You know, this is not. This is very different than modern church membership. I mean, if you wanted to do it back then, you had to go through like a little surgical operation right at the beginning that deterred a lot of men from being eagerly interested in becoming Jewish. And then you had to buy into the entire uh, set of laws and everything. So, a lot of them didn't want to do all that, but they really liked the essence. Yes. They're uh, worldview seekers. The Lazarus thing had happened. Uh, yeah, and uh, whether they got from Greece to Israel based on that report or if it just happened. But certainly, the, the word would have been circulating no matter how they got there that this teacher raised somebody from the dead. Anybody else? they are and if you go over to Acts 17 now and I'll show you a text it tells you something about the Greek mindset which those of you who remember their course with John Oliver or any of your beloved history professors um, look at chapter 17 verse 21 what characterized not you know this is a stereotype for sure but what generally characterized the Greek mindset. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but what? Talking and listening to what? The latest and newest ideas. These are worldview junkies. CNN junkies. <laughs> Except CNN doesn't really blatantly tell you their worldview. They give you the facts of the world shot through their worldview, but they don't really tell you what their worldview is. I mean, would you agree with that? These people dispense with just the latest news. I mean, you can just go right through the dial. You click on Fox, you get the same facts shot through a Foxian worldview. Agreed? Or, or do you guys think actually that their advertising is correct, that you do get the truth. <laughs> See me afterwards, I have medicine for you if you <laughs> believe 
Fox, CNN, MSNBC, they all give you facts, but then they also intermingle in there their slants, their worldview. These people, they do what? I don't, we don't want to know about some uh, particular happenstance necessarily that happened last week uh, on the uh, Greek mainline. What we want to know is what? Source. The source. What it's all about. What's the big vision? What's, why are we here? What's the meaning and purpose of life? What are we doing here? They're worldview junkies. So it wouldn't be beyond imagination, if you go back to John 12 now, to say that these Greeks are what? They have heard somehow that there's some guru walking around Galilee in Israel, and they go up at a time when they think it's most likely that he will be there, the biggest feast of the year, Passover, and they scout around, they search around, and they come to the homies of Jesus. Verse 21, they came to Philip, and he goes, now notice, who was from Bethesda in Galilee with a request, sir, we would like to see Jesus. And then he goes and gets Andrew and Philip, and they all then come to Jesus. So you sort of, if you use your imagination, you can kind of see Jesus has got a system set up that you can't just get right to him to see Jesus, to talk to him, to have an audience with him. You have to do what? You've got to go through one of his boys. He's got this set up, which makes sense, right? Because, I mean, everybody in the whole world would want to have a personal audience with Jesus. He would be besieged. So he's got this little system up. They, they, they find out who's close to Jesus, and they say, we'd like to talk to Jesus. So they confer with each other, which tells you that they've gotten into the habit of what? They don't just run to Jesus with every cockamamie idea that they have. They confer with each other, and they, after the conference is over, they say what? We think this is a legitimate request, and we're going to bring it to the master. Got this so far? So, Starting in verse 23, we now have something that seems pretty odd. I mean, it doesn't fit like our Western culture. In, in the West, we would, Jesus would be pictured as saying, um, you know what, uh, I really don't have the time for a personal audience right now. Uh, please send my regrets. Maybe uh, after I raise from the dead, I can confer with you. But right now, I'm in the last week of my life, and I don't have time to do it. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He just... Well, let's see what he does. Verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So this is the announcement of what time he thinks it is. And it's actually the announcement of his little sermon title. So what's the, what's the title of his sermon? We're going to unpack this passage. You've got to work quick, too. What's the title? Okay, so we can just, you know, the, t the title of the sermon is Glorification. The subject is Son of Man, right? And he said, and when he puts the thing, this is the hour, he's using hour as an indicator, what? To me, the, the, this is going to happen. This is an event that's going to, it's right now. This is the new big event that's going to happen. So I'm announcing this to you. 
Now, then he goes on after his, this is his first message back to the Greeks. He's giving them a message that the disciples are going to have to take back because he's not going to meet with them. So the first thing that he does is give them an illustration. Now, what I want to know is why does he choose this particular one out of the multitude of illustrations that he gives? He gives an agricultural observation. And this is one of the uh, verily, verily, amen, amen sayings. You know, when the master does that, when he says truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen. What, what's that all about when, when, a, when they do that in the Bible, when Jesus does it? They had superlatives, but you're on the right path. It's impact. Uh, listen, to this. listen to this. This is excruciating. This is really important. It's a way of prefacing. Sometimes preachers, you'll hear them say, now, if, if you haven't listened to anything else I said today, listen to this. They, like they let you know, right? This is the big idea. So here's Jesus doing the same. This is absolutely true, he's saying. And what is it that he's saying that is true? It's an agricultural observation. Point number one. From agriculture, who's got it? Before a plant can grow, the seed has to die. Before a, before a harvest or a plant can be obtained, the seed the kernel must do what? It must fall into the ground and there it must do what? It must die. And if it does that, you get the great harvest. What if the seed remains alone? does not fall into the ground and therefore does not die in the ground. What does he... Uh, well, I mean, it would eventually, but what does he say? He draws out specifically what he wants you to understand, the implications. Eventually will die. But that's not really his point. It just remains that single seed. It remains, he says, alone. Okay, so this is the first thing that he says. This is. I think that's why Lazarus comes in. Mm-hmm. Because they're looking for eternal life themselves. Yeah, I mean, your emphasis on this is beautiful because I think the resurrection of resuscitation of Lazarus really was an encouragement, not just to everybody else, but an encouragement to Jesus, too. He did it one week before he died. So having seen God work through him in such a way that Lazarus gets resuscitated must have given Jesus a lot more courage to go to the cross because he went to the cross knowing what? Well, if, if, if it worked for Lazarus, God will do it for me, too. And I know some of you might not like to think of Jesus that way because you want to put all the emphasis on Jesus as God but you know the emphasis in the New Testament in the Gospels is not that Jesus is deity it's 
that he's a human. Now, we come to believe that he's also God, but he really did live a human experience. And when he looked forward to dying on the cross, was he skipping and jumping and, oh, I get to do this, it's so awesome. It's not gonna really hurt that bad because three days later I'll be risen, risen from the dead and it doesn't matter. Is that what his attitude was? No, in fact, he gets right to the, to the end and he's like, uh, God, are you serious? Are you really, is this really the right plan? In the garden, do you remember this? He's sweating blood. So, that's great. I just don't know whether the Greeks knew enough about Lazarus' event to, to have that in their head, but it's right on point because this, this little metaphor that he's giving to the Greeks has to do with dying. Yes, I... I I think you're, you've, you, it's well within the possibility that they could have heard about this in the time that they were there. Okay, so the question is, though, is there any other reason why he would choose this as his first saying to them? This is really absolutely true. Why does he say that particularly to the Greeks? Okay. So, as all good teachers do, he starts from what is known and is going to build off of what is known to reach a conclusion that cannot be seen. This is something that everybody has seen. We all know it. It's a sense-derived truth. He's going to build on it. But why that particular one? for the Greeks. He could have used, you know, the net in the sea or the pearl of great price or all of the things that he told. Why does he choose this thing about a grain falling into the ground for this particular group of people? Jack? I thought I saw something flash. He knows who, oh, he, he's, got a, he's got a knowledge of what's going to come based on the fact that he's read the Bible and has been in contact with God. He knows you. But why say that to the Greeks? Ah. Now we're getting hot. Not just farmers, but who knows, yes. It has to do with the Eleusian myths. It is an... What it was that embedded at the core of the Eleusian myth notion? Demeter. 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 The goddess of agriculture. The goddess of agriculture. Oh, wow. Now, you need to see this. Here's a frieze that the Greeks produced to display and explain their worldview. I'm going to pass this around. But can you see this woman right here? And you'll, you'll see she's got something in her hand. Sheaves of wheat. And uh, I'll just shoot that around. So in the um, part of the Eleusian mystery was this idea that they took these people into what is called the telesterion. It was a 
big amp amphitheater, and it was set up to have a, a, a light show, actors, voices coming from all over the place. It was an annual pilgrimage that the Greeks did for 2,000 years. It started in 1600 B.C., and it went until 400 A.D. They did it every year, about 12 miles southwest of Athens. It was the longest continuous running church cult religious worldview phenomenon in the Western world. All of the Greeks went through it. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. You could only go through it if you were a Greek. You had to be Greek and you had to speak Greek to go through it. But slave, free, rich, poor, educated, non-educated, anybody could go to the Eleusian mystery, take the pilgrimage from Athens to Eleusis and go through this monumental cosmic light show. And by the way, when you walked in the door, you were given a drink. Guess what it was made out of? It was a drug. It was made out of barley, and most people have concluded that it contained uh, ergot that grows on grain, which is the precursor to LSD. So they were given a moderate uh, psychedelic. <laughs> what are you laughing at? I, you, guys, you guys are aware of the fact that people have been using psychedelics from time immemorial, right? I mean, this was normative. You were given a psychedelic and taken into this cosmic light show, and there reenacted for you was the myth of Demeter, Persephone, how Persephone was stolen by Hades and taken underground, and then that explains why we have winter, and then Demeter goes down and gets Persephone, and when she comes back up to the outer world, then she can relax and then start blessing everybody with harvest and grain again. At the central core of it, and as you see that picture, she's got this grain. So what is Jesus doing here? Oh, he's just speaking to his audience. He's speaking truth to them in terms of what they have already understood. But he's not going to just leave them there. He's going to take them to the next step. So his first step is, let's talk about something truly that we all know to be true. A grain of wheat is not going to produce a harvest unless it falls into the ground and dies. And you guys have been memorializing that. At that time, they're 1,600 years into doing this year after year after year. This is their central motif, their central myth. What? The grain of wheat? Yes. It releases its... It, decom it, it decomposes and releases its stored-up DNA material into the soil, and the release of that DNA material allows for many more to come forth. But even Lazarus didn't die. Jesus what? says he's just sleeping. Well, that's... He's just... Um, uh, being Jesus when he says stuff like that. He's just, he, that's just typical Jesus language. He, he doesn't mean literally that he's asleep. He just means, he look, you know, he's symbolic. He's, 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 he's like saying to them... Isn't the death here symbolic? Uh, well, there's a symbolic notion to it. However, look at the next thing that he says and you'll see that it's not just symbolic. 
Uh, he then moves to verse 25. The person who loves his life will lose it, while the person who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So now he's moved to the next stage. Who's he talking about? This is not just symbolic now. The person that tries to find the meaning and purpose of life in this life is not going to find it. In fact, what you're going to discover is what? That a loss of meaning. But if a person follows Jesus as he did, then they will experience the rebirth of meaning, the rebirth of life, and a new kind of life if they follow Jesus. Because what's the title of the sermon? The glorification of the Son of Man. Well, how was, and as you go, because we're running out of time, so you'll have to look at this a little bit on your own. What, what, how does Jesus get glorified in his mind? What's the glorification? His death. His death. That's like bonkers. How can you look at life that way? I'm going to be glorified. What he really means is I'm going to be crucified. So in essence, I'll just give you the big idea and then we'll talk about it again next week. What he's saying to the Greeks is, this myth that you've been practicing for 1,600 years, I'm now going to, in time-space history, actually fulfill for real. I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to die. I'm going to allow myself to be crucified. Then I'm going to raise from the dead. I'm going to come back to life. And everybody that believes in me is going to go through that experience as well. You're going to be reborn into a new kind of life. You're going to experience a new kind of life. And it'll be beyond the senses. It won't be something that you can any longer experience with the five senses. It will be a supernatural, spiritual realization. And that's where you're going to find your meaning, living in harmony with the risen Christ. Now, we've got one minute left. Who wants to say something? Is it making sense what he's doing here? Yes, John. If your lesson is not published? Now, next week, we're going to talk about this concept because who remembers Plato's, actually it's Socrates's, but Plato's allegory of the cave. Better. So maybe you better read that this week too. <laughs> um, because this is the foundation of Greco thought, the, the notion of the, the allegory of the cave. And Socrates went through the Eleusian mysteries. And so the, the cave analogy is to be regarded as an extension of that experience that he had. Now, 
what is Plato, Socrates' main point is, is that most people spend their life looking at and thinking that the shadows are reality. You'll, you'll discover this when you review it. Look up Plato's cave. And Socrates believed that a person could get into a state of consciousness where you no longer looked at the shadows, but you looked at the pure light of reason, and you would be totally illuminated. And here Jesus is doing what? He's sort of entering this myth, and he's saying what? What's the last thing that he says to them in the end of the sermon? What is his last statement? Verse 35, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. He's talking about himself in the flesh. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The one who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become what? Children of light. So Jesus is borrowing two ancient myths from the Greco worldview, inserting himself himself into it as the core of the meaning. We're going to die, we're going to be reborn with Jesus, and then we're going to have the capacity to live in this world of light, spiritual light, not shadows. That's what he's claiming. So have a great week this week learning about the Eleusian mysteries and Plato's cave, and we'll tie all of this together when we get together next time. Thank you for coming. God bless you. See you next week.